Chapter Fourteen of In the Reign of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. In the Reign of Terror by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Fourteen, The Noyade. When left alone, Harry blew out the other candles but left that in the lantern burning, and threw himself down on the locker, and thought over every detail of the work for the next day. As he had said, the great danger was of Virginie struggling and being too frightened to follow his instructions. Certainly he could fasten a rope round her, but even then it might be difficult to manage her. The next danger was that other persons might cling to the hatchway. Harry felt the long knife which was concealed in his breast. "'God grant I may not have to use it,' he said." "'But, if it must be, I shall not hesitate. "'They would simply destroy us without saving themselves, that is certain. "'Therefore I am justified in defending the girls, "'as I would against any other enemy.' "'He knelt down and prayed for some time. "'Then he replaced the piece they had cut from the hatch "'and fixed the beams beneath it, and then lay down again. "'He was worn out by the excitement of the day, "'and in spite of his anxiety about the morrow, "'he presently fell off to sleep. "'It was long before he woke.' When he did so, he looked through one of the auger-holes into the hold, and saw the light streaming down the open hatchway, and could tell that the sun was already up. He ate the food which Marth had put into his pocket just as he was starting, saw that the bundles of corks were ready at hand, and the ropes attached to them so placed that they could be fastened on in an instant. Then there was nothing to do but to wait. The time passed slowly. Presently he heard the sound of drums and bugles, and knew that the troops were taking up their positions on the keys. At last, it seemed many hours to him, he heard the splash of oars and presently a slight shock as a boat ran alongside the lugger. Then there were voices, and the sound of feet above as persons mounted onto the deck. There was a scraping noise by the lugger's side, and immediately afterwards another bump as the second boat took the place of the first. This, as far as Harry could hear, did not leave the lugger. There was a great hum of talking on deck, principally in women's voices, and frequently persons stepped on the hatch, and Harry congratulated himself that the beams gave a solid support to it. Half an hour passed, as well as Harry could judge. Then the boom of a cannon was heard, and immediately two men leapt down into the hold, knocked the six plugs out of their place, and climbed up on deck again. There was again the scraping noise, and Harry knew the boat had pushed off, this time for good. He watched as if fascinated the six jets of water for a minute or two, then, saying to himself, it is time, he knocked the beams from their ledges, allowed the square of wood to fall, lifted the hatch, and pushed it off its combing, and then clambered on to the deck with the corks and ropes. There were some fifty persons on board, for the most part women and children, but with two or three men among them. They were gathered near the stern, and were apparently watching the scene ashore with astonishment. He hurried aft, having no fear that at this distance from the shore his figure would be recognized from the rest, and if it were, it mattered not. Two or three turned round as the supposed sailor came aft, exclaiming, "'What does this mean? Why are we put here on board these white ships? What are they going to do with us?' "'Alas, ladies,' he said, "'they have put you here to die. They have bored holes in the ship's bottoms, and in a few minutes they will sink. It is a wholesale execution.' As he began to speak, one of the ladies in the stern pushed her way through the rest. "'Oh, Harry, is it you?' she exclaimed as he finished. "'Is it true? Are we to die together?' "'We are in God's hands, John, but there is hope yet. Bring Virginie forward with me.' 
At Harry's first words a panic had seized all round. One or two ran to the hatchway and looked down into the hold, and screamed out that the water was rushing in. Then some cried to the distant crowd to send to save them. Others ran up and down as if demented, while some threw themselves on their knees. But the panic soon passed away. All had for weeks looked death in the face, and though the unexpected form in which it appeared had for the moment shaken them, they soon recovered. Mothers clasped their daughters to their breasts for a last farewell, and then all with bowed heads kneeled and listened in silence to an old man who began to pray aloud. Jean, without another word, had taken Virginie's hands and accompanied Harry forward to the forepart of the deck. Jean, I'm going to try to save you and Virginie, but everything depends upon your being cool and brave. I need not urge you, because I'm sure of you. Virginie, will you try to be so for Jean's sake and for your own? If you do not, we must all die together. What are we to do, Harry? Jean said steadily, while Virginie clung to her sister's sobbing bitterly. Fasten this bundle of corks between Virginie's shoulders. High up, yes, there. While Jean was doing this, Harry fastened a rope to a ring in the side of the hatch. Then he tied the corks onto Jean's shoulders and adjusted the third bundle to his own. Now, Jean, he said, I will tell you what we are going to do. You see this hatch? When the vessel sinks it will float, and we must float on our backs with our faces underneath it, so that it will hide us from the sight of the wretches on shore. And even if they put out in boats to kill any who may be swimming or clinging to spars, they will not suspect that there is anyone under this. We may not succeed. An accident may betray us, but there is a possibility. At any rate, dear, we shall live or die together. I am content, Jean said quietly. You know, Jean, Harry said, putting his hands on the girl's shoulders, that I love you. I should never have told you so until I got you home if it hadn't been for this. But though I've never said it, you know I love you. I know, Harry, and I love you too with all my heart, so much that I can feel almost happy that we are going to die together. We are affianced now, dear, come what will. And she lifted her face to his. He gave her one long kiss, then there was a crash. Impatient at the length of time the vessels were in sinking, those ashore had opened fire with cannons upon them, and the shot had struck the lugger just above the water. With a little cry, Virginie fell senseless on the deck. "'That's the best thing that could have happened,' Harry said as Jean stooped over her sister. "'Lie down on the deck, dear, you may be struck. They are firing with muskets now. I'm going to lie down, too,' he said in answer to her look. "'But I shall first twist this cord round Virginie so as to keep her arms by her side.' Otherwise, when the water touches her, she may come to her senses and struggle. That's all right. Then he lay down on the deck between the girls with his head against the hatch, and holding the rope. Put your head on my shoulder, Jean, and I will put my arm round you. I will hold Virginie the same way the other side. Hold tight by me for a moment as we sink. I may have to use my arms to get the hatch over our faces. Do not breathe while you are under the water, for we shall, no doubt, go down with the lugger, although I shall try to keep you afloat. When you are under the hatch, you will find you afloat with your mouth well out of the water, and we will be able to breathe. The corks will keep you up. I understand, Harry. Now let us pray until the time comes. Shot after shot struck the lugger, then Harry felt her give a sudden lurch. There was a wild cry, and the next moment she went down, stern first. She was so nearly even with the water when she sank that there was less downward suck than Harry had expected, and striking out with his feet, his head was soon above the surface. The cord had kept the hatch within a couple of feet of him, and with some difficulty, owing to the buoyancy of the corks, he thrust himself and the girls under it. The tarpaulin was old and rotten, and the light penetrated in several places, and Harry could see that, in the position in which they were lying, the faces of both girls were above the water. 
It was useless to speak, for their ears were submerged, but a slight motion from Jeanne responded to a pressure of his arm, and he knew that she was sensible, although she had not made the slightest motion from the moment the vessel sank. Virginie had not, as he feared would be the case, recovered her senses with the shock of the immersion, but lay insensible on his shoulder. He could see by the movement of Jeanne's lips that she was praying, and he too thanked God that he had given success to the plan so far, and prayed for protection to the end. With every minute that passed, his hopes rose. Everything had answered beyond his expectation. The other victims had apparently not even noticed what he was doing, and therefore had not, as he feared might be the case, interfered with his preparations, nor had any of them striven to gain a hold on the hatchway. The sinking of the vessels and the tearing up of the water by the shot would render the surface disturbed and broken and increase the chances of the floating hatch attracting attention. After ten minutes had passed, he felt certain that they must be below the point where the troops were assembled. The tide was running out strong, for the time for the massacre had been fixed at an hour which would ensure the bodies being swept down to sea. Half an hour would, he thought, take them past the bend where their friends would be waiting for them. The time seemed endless, for although Harry felt the coldness of the water but little for himself, he knew that it must be trying indeed for Jeanne. As far as he could see her face it was as white as her sister's, but he had hold of one of her hands now, and knew that she was still conscious. At last he heard the sound of oars. It might not be one of the friendly boats, but the probability was that it was one or other of them. Had they seen any other fishermen's boats near the point, they would have rowed high up so as to intercept the hatch before it reached the stranger. Harry could not hear voices, for although the water had conveyed the sound of the oars a considerable distance, he could hear no sound in the air. The oars came nearer and nearer, and by the quickness with which the strokes followed each other, he knew that two boats were at hand. Then the hatch was suddenly lifted, and as Harry raised his head above the water, there was a loud cheer, and he saw Adolphe and Pierre, one on each side, stretch out their arms to him. The girls were first lifted into Pierre's boat, for Jeanne was as incapable of movement as her sister. Then Harry was dragged in, the rough sailors shaking his hand and patting him on the shoulder, while the tears ran down their cheeks. "'Give them some hot brandy and water,' were his first words. Pierre had a kettle boiling. A glass of hot liquor was placed to Jeanne's lips. At first she could not swallow, but after a few drops had passed her lips she was able to take a sip, and would then have stopped, but Harry insisted upon her drinking the whole contents of the glass. "'You must do as you are told, Jeanne,' he said in her ear. "'You belong to me now, you know. It can do you no harm, chilled as you are, and may save you from illness.' In the meantime, Pierre had poured several spoonfuls of nearly neat brandy between Virginie's lips. Adolphe and one of the men with him had changed over into Pierre's boat, and were rowing lustily down the river. As soon as Jeanne was able to sit up, she began to chafe one of Virginie's hands, while Harry took the other. "'Take off her shoes, Pierre, and soak a swab with the hot water and put it to her feet.' But with all these efforts, it was not until they were close to Pierre's village that Virginie opened her eyes. When they arrived at the little causeway, the two girls were wrapped up in the peasant's cloaks which Pierre had brought with him. Jean took Harry's arm, while Adolphe lifted Virginie and carried her up. Henriette was standing at the door as Jean staggered in with Harry. That is right, mademoiselle. Thank God who has brought you straight through the danger. Now do not stop a moment, but come in here and get into bed. It is all ready for you. The blankets have been before the fire until the moment you landed. They will soon give you warmth. Hurry in, mademoiselle. I will undress your sister. And do you, Monsieur Sandwith, hurry up to the loft and get on dry clothes. Harry soon rejoined the party in the kitchen. The strong glass of hot spirits he had drunk had sent the blood quickly through his veins, and he felt in a glow of warmth. Now, he said, 
My friends, I can thank you all for the aid you have given us. It is to you we owe our lives, for without your aid I never should have succeeded. Say nothing about it, monsieur. We are happy to have saved such a brave young man, and to have rescued two victims from those monsters. Do you think there is any danger of anyone here taking the news of our landing to the town? Harry asked. They must have seen us come up to the cottage. There is no fear, Pierre said confidently. There is not a man or woman here who would not tear the Scelera to pieces if they had the chance. Have they not spoiled our market by killing all our best customers? And now how are we to earn our living, I should like to know? Why, not even the poorest beggar and not would buy fish out of the river for months after this. No, you need have no fear of them. They may guess who you are, but it is no business of theirs, and they will hold their tongues. At any rate, Pierre, you had better distribute a few crowns among them, to help them live till the fishing is good again. That I will do, monsieur. It is quite safe, but it is as well to make it even safer. In half an hour, Pierre's wife came in from the inner room, and said that both girls were sound asleep. Now, Adolphe, it only remains for you to arrange with your captain for a passage. That I will do this afternoon, Adolphe said confidently. Consider it as good as done. After Adolphe had started for the town, Harry was persuaded by Pierre to lie down for a bit, but he soon gave up the idea of going to sleep. His brain was in a whirl from the events of the last twenty-four hours, and above all he felt so brimming over with happiness that the girls had been saved that he soon found it impossible to lie still. He therefore went down again and joined Pierre, who was doing some repairs to his boat. "'It is no use my trying to sleep, Pierre. I am too delighted that everything has turned out right. I want to break out into shouting and singing.' "'I can understand, monsieur, yes, yes. After great trouble, great joy. I know it myself. I was once adrift in a boat for three weeks. I was on a voyage to Guadeloupe when we were blown in a hurricane on a key, as they call the low sandy islands out there. It was in fact no more than a sandbank. More than half of those on board were drowned, but eight of us got ashore, and we managed to haul up a woman with her child of two years old in her arms. We thought at first the mother was dead, but she came round. The ship went to pieces, and we saved nothing.' The current swept everything away but a boat, which had been thrown up beyond the reach of the waves. For two days we had no food or water, and suffered terribly, for the sun had shone down straight on our heads, and we envied those who had died at once. The woman set us a good example. She spent her time tending her child and praying to God. And we sailors, who are rough, you know, but who know that God protects us and never go for a long voyage without going to the chapel and praying for a mass for our safety— we prayed too, and the third morning there were three turtles asleep on the shore. We turned them over on their backs, and there was meat for us for a long time. We killed one and drank the blood, and ate our first meal raw. Then we cut up the rest of the flesh and hung it up in the sun to dry. That very night we saw the clouds banking up, and knew it was going to rain. Now, our mate said, if we had but a barrel we could catch water and start in a boat. But without that the water will last only a day or two, for if we kill all the turtles and fill their shells, it will evaporate in a day under this hot sun, and it may be weeks before there is rain again, and we might as well have died at once. For shame, the woman said. You are doubting the good God again, after he has saved your life and has sent you food and is now going to send you water. Do you think he has done all this for nothing? There must be some way out of the difficulty if we could but think of it. She sat looking at the turtle for two or three minutes and then said, It is easy. Why have you not thought of it? See there. Cut off one of their heads, and then you can get your arm in, if you take the biggest, then cut out all the meat and bones piece by piece, and there is a great bottle which will hold gallons. We shouted for joy, for it was as she had said, though I am sure none of us would ever have thought of it if God had not given her the idea. We soon set to work and got the shell ready. The rainstorm came quickly. 
We had turned the boat over, the oars had been washed away, but the mast and sail were lashed to the thwarts. We made a little hollow in the sand and stretched out the sail, and by the time this was done and the men were ready with the turtle shell, the rain came. When it rains in those parts it comes down in bucketfuls, and we soon had enough in the sail to drink our fill and to fill up the turtle shell to the top. The next morning we got the boat afloat, put the other turtle in, with our stock of dried flesh and our shell of water, and set sail. But our luck seemed gone. We lay for days scarce moving through the water, with the sail hanging idle and the sun blazing down upon us. We had not been careful enough of the water at first, making sure that in three or four days we should sight land, and when after three days we put ourselves on short rations, there was scarce a gallon of water left. It was a week after that before we saw a sail. Two of the men had jumped overboard, raving mad. The rest were lying well nigh senseless in the bottom of the boat. Only the woman was sitting up, holding her child in her arms. She was very weak, too, but she had never complained, never doubted for a moment. Her eyes went from the child's face over the sea to look for the help she felt would come, and back again, and at last she said, quite quiet and natural, There is the ship. I knew it must come today, for my child could not live through another night. We thought she was dreaming or off her head, but one of us made a shift to stand up and look, and when he screamed out, A sail! A sail! Two of us who were strong enough looked out also. There she was, and sailing, as we could soon see, on a line as directly for us as if they had our bearings and had been sent to fetch us. It was not until evening that she came up, though she was bringing a light breeze along with her. And when we were lifted on to her deck, and had water held to our lips, and knew that we were safe, we felt, I expect, much the same as you do now, monsieur, that it was the good God himself who had assuredly saved us from death. That was my last voyage, for Henriette was waiting for me at home, and I had promised her that after we had gone to church together I would go no more to distant countries, but would settle down here as a fisherman. That was a narrow escape indeed, Pierre, Harry said as he worked away with the tar-brush. That idea of the turtle was a splendid one, and you may well say that God put it into the woman's head, for without it you could never have lived till the ship found you. In the meantime, Henriette had made her rounds to the cottage to see what remarks had been made as to the coming of her visitors. She saw that everyone had guessed that the girls who had been picked up by Pierre were victims of the massacre, but no one supposed that it was the result of intention. "'Ah, Mère Gennard, but your good man was fortunate today,' one of the wounds said. "'My man did not go out. We heard what was doing at Nantes, and he had not the heart to go. Besides, who would buy fish caught today?' If he had thought of it, he would have gone, too, and perhaps he would have picked up somebody, as you have done. Poor things, what an escape for them! It is wonderful that they have come around, Henriette said. It was lucky my husband had some brandy in the boat. He thought for a time he would never bring the youngest round. They are only young girls. What harm could they have done that those monsters at Nantes should try to murder them? There is no fear, I hope, that any in the village will say a word about it. What? the woman said indignantly. Do you think that anyone here would betray a comrade to the Reds? Why, we would tear him to pieces. No, no, Henriette said. I never thought for a moment that anyone would do it intentionally, but the boys might let slip a word carelessly which might bring them down upon us. We will take care of that, the woman said. Make your mind easy. Not a soul outside the village will ever know of it. And, Henriette added, one of them has some money hidden upon her, and she told me just before I came out, when I was saying that the village would have a bad time now the fishing was spoiled, that as she hoped to cross to England in a few days, and would have no need of the money, for it seems that she can get plenty over there, she will give five crowns to each house in the village as a thank-offering. "'Well, that is not to be despised,' the woman said. "'We shall have a hard time of it for a bit, and that will carry us on through it. 
You are sure she can spare it, because we would rather starve than take it if she cannot. Henriette assured her that her visitor said she could afford it well. Well, then, it's a lucky day for the village, Mary Gunnard, that your husband picked them up. Well, I will go back now, Henriette said. Will you go round the village and tell the others about silencing the children? I must get some broth ready by the time these poor creatures wake. The next morning, Jeanne appeared at breakfast in her dress as a fish girl, but few words were spoken between her and Harry, for the fisherman and his wife were present. How is Virginie? he asked. She's better, but she's weak and languid, so I told her she must stop in bed for today. Do not look anxious. I have no doubt that she will be well enough to be up tomorrow. She has been sleeping ever since she went to bed yesterday, and when she woke she had a basin of broth. I think by tomorrow she will be well enough to get up. But it will be some time before she is herself again. It is a terrible strain for her to have gone through, but she was very brave all the time we were in prison. She had such confidence in you, she felt sure that she would manage somehow to rescue us. After breakfast, Jeanne strolled down with Harry to the riverside. "'I feel strange with you, Harry,' she said. "'Before you seemed almost like a brother, and now it is so different.' "'Yes, but happier?' Harry asked gently. "'Oh, so much happier, Harry. But there is one thing I want to tell you. It might seem strange to you that I should tell you I loved you on my own account without your speaking to the head of the family.' "'But there was no time for that, Jeanne,' Harry said, smiling. "'No,' Jeanne said simply. I suppose it would have been the same anyhow, but I want to tell you, Harry, that in the first letter, which she sent me when she was in prison, Marie told me that, as she might not see me again, she thought it right I should know that our father and mother had told her that night we left home that they thought I cared for you. You didn't think so, did you, Harry? She broke off with a vivid blush. You did not think I cared for you before you cared for me. No, indeed, Jean, he said earnestly. It never entered my mind. You see, dear, up to the beginning of that time I only felt as a boy— and in England lads of eighteen or nineteen seldom think about such things at all. It was only afterwards, when somehow the danger and the anxiety seemed to make a man of me, when I saw how brave and thoughtful and unselfish you were, that I knew I loved you, and felt that if you could some day love me I should be the happiest fellow alive. Before that I thought of you as a dear little girl, who inclined to make rather too much of me because of that dog business. And did you really care for me then? I never thought of it in that way, Harry, any more than you did— but I know now that my mother was right, and that I loved you all along without knowing it. My dear father and mother told Marie that they thought I was fond of you, and that, if at any time you should get fond of me too and ask for my hand, they gave their approval beforehand, for they were sure that you would make me happy. So they told Marie and Ernest, who, if ill came to them, would be the heads of the family, that I had their consent to marry you. It makes me happy to know this, Harry. I am very glad too, dear, Harry said earnestly. It is very satisfactory for you, and it is very pleasant to me to know that they were ready to trust you to me. Ah, he said suddenly, that was what was in the letter. I wondered a little at the time, for somehow after that, John, you were a little different with me. I thought at first I might somehow have offended you, but I did not think that long, he went on, as John uttered an indignant exclamation, because if anything offended you, you always spoke out frankly. Still, I wondered over it for some time, and certainly I was never near guessing the truth. "'I could not help being a little different,' Jean said shyly. "'I had never thought of it before, and though I am sure it made me happy, "'I could not feel quite the same with you, "'especially as I knew that you never thought of me like that.' "'But you thought of me so afterwards, Jean? "'Sometimes, just for a moment, but I tried not to think of it, Harry. "'We were so strangely placed, and it made it easier for you to be a brother, "'and I felt sure you would not speak till we were safely in England, "'and I was in earnest care.' But, she said with a little laugh, you were nearly speaking that evening in the cottage when you felt so despairing. 
Very nearly, Jean. I did so want comfort. And so they talked happily together for an hour. I wonder Pierre does not come down to his boat, Harry said at last. There were several more things wanting doing to it. Why, there he is calling. Surely it can never be dinner time, but that's what he says. It doesn't seem an hour since breakfast. Jean hurried on into the hut. Why, Pierre, Harry said to the fisherman who was waiting outside for him, I thought you were going on with your boat. So I was, monsieur, but Henriette told me I should be in the way. In the way, Pierre, Harry repeated in surprise. Ah, monsieur, Pierre said with a twinkle in his eye, you have been deceiving us. My wife saw in a moment when the young lady came to breakfast. Brother, she said to me when he went out, don't tell me. Monsieur is the young lady's lover. Brother and sister, don't look at each other like that. Why, one could see it with half an eye. Your wife is right, Pierre. Mademoiselle's my fiancée. I'm really an Englishman. She and her sister had their old nurse with them till the latter died some three weeks since. But I have always been called their brother because it made it easier for her. Quite right, monsieur. But my wife and I are glad to see that it is otherwise, and that, after all you have risked for that pretty creature, you are going to be happy together. My wife was not surprised. Women are sharper than men in these matters, and she said to me, when she heard what you were going to do to save them, I would wager, Pierre, that one of these mademoiselles is not monsieur's sister. Men will do a great deal for the sister, but I never heard of a man throwing away his life as he is going to do on the mere chance of saving one. I should have done just the same thing had it been one of my sisters, Harry said a little indignantly. Perhaps you would, monsieur. I do not say no, the fisherman said, shaking his head. But brothers do not often do so. A stop was put to the conversation by Henriette putting her head outside the door and demanding angrily what they were stopping talking there for when the fish was getting cold. In the evening, Adolphe and his wife came in. Ah, mademoiselle, the woman said as she embraced Jean with tears in her eyes. How thankful I am to see you again. I never thought I should do so. My heart almost stopped beating yesterday when I heard the guns. I and my little one were on our knees praying to the good God for the dear lady who had saved her life. Adolphe had spoken hopefully, but it hardly seemed to me that it could be, and when he brought back the news that he had left you all safely here, I could hardly believe it was true. And I must thank you also, mademoiselle, Adolphe said, for saving the life of my little one. I never expected to see her alive again, and when the lugger was made fast to the wharf, I was afraid to go home, and I hung about till Marthe had heard we were in, and came down to me with Julie in her arms, looking almost herself again. Ah, mademoiselle, you cannot tell how glad I was when she told me that there was a way of paying some part of my debt to you. You have been able to pay more than your debt, Jean said gently. If I saved one life, you have helped to save three. No, we shall be only quits, mademoiselle. For what would Mart's life and mine be worth if the child had died? There are fresh notices stuck up, he went on, warning all masters of ships, fishermen, and others against taking passengers on board, and saying that the penalty of assisting the enemies of France to escape from justice is death. That is rather serious, Harry said. It is nothing, Adolphe replied confidently. After yesterday's work there is not a sailor or fisherman in the port, but would do all he could to help people to escape from the hands of the butchers, and once on board it will help you. You may be sure the sailors will do their best to run away if they can, or to hide any on board should they be overhauled, now they know that they will be guillotined if anyone is found. However, our captain has made the agreement, and he is a man of his word. Besides, he hates the Reds. I have been helping ship the casks today, and we have stowed them so as to leave space into which your sisters can crawl, and the entrance be stopped up with casks, if we should be overhauled. As for you, monsieur, you will pass anywhere as one of the crew, and we have arranged that one of the men shall at the last moment stay behind, so that the number will be right, and you will answer to his name. We have thought matters over, you see, 
and I can tell you that the captain does it more because he hates the Reds than for the money. The day before, he would give me no answer. He said he thought the risk was too great, but when I saw him last night, he was a different man altogether. His face was as white as a sheet, and his eyes seemed on fire, and he said, I will take your friends, Adolphe. I would take them without a penny. I should never sleep again if, owing to me, they fell into the hands of these monsters. So you see, he is in it heart and soul. After an hour's talk, Adolphe and Martz took their leave. Both refused the reward which Harry had promised, but Harry insisted, and at last Jean said, You can refuse for yourselves, but you will make me unhappy if you do not take it. Put it by for Julie. It will help swell her dough when she marries, and we shall set her husband up in a good fishing boat if she takes to a sailor. So it was arranged, and Adolphe and his wife went off invoking blessings on the heads of the fugitives. At daybreak, the party took their places in the boat with the fishermen. Virginie was still weak, but was able to walk with Harry's help. Half an hour later, a lugger was seen coming down with the wind and tide. She carried a small white flag flying on the mitzen. That is her, the fisherman said. That is the signal. He rowed out into the middle of the river. In a few minutes, the lugger came dashing along. Her course took her within a few feet of the boat. A rope was thrown, and in an instant the boat was tearing through the water alongside her. Half a dozen hands were stretched out. The girls and Harry sprang on board. The rope was cast off, and the fisherman, with a cheery, God speed you, put out his oars again and rowed to shore. End of chapter 14 Recording by Jen Raimundo